All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the blessings that we've experienced already. Now, Lord, you need to take us somewhere that we may not want to go, somewhere where we may not even believe you know about. Help us to be courageous. In Jesus' name, amen. Ezekiel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came on me there. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. And from there up here, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and in vision of God, he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I had seen in the plain." I don't know how much time you've spent reading the book of Ezekiel, but it's always interesting to me how everything in the book of Ezekiel is so strongly worded. In fact, the language is almost violent sometimes. This is not the first time Ezekiel has seen the Lord. And each time Ezekiel gets a vision of the Lord, the vision is one of overwhelming power and glory. In chapter 1, Ezekiel sees the vision. It comes after a whirlwind and And the Lord is seated on top of a mobile throne with four living creatures underneath and the wheels within the wheels. And then we get this in chapter 2, verse 4. The people to whom I'm sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. But you, son of man, Listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious people. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. Some of the prophets got to bring comforting messages. Some of the prophets got to bring words of hope. But Ezekiel's experience as a prophet would not be that of a comforting shepherd. Why? Well, it's quite simple, really. Ezekiel could not be a comforting prophet because, frankly, these were not good times. You see, the darkness that lay deep inside the hearts of the people behind their walls had finally come out and their darkness had destroyed them. Anybody who was paying attention to Ezekiel had to suspect that he was likely more than a little crazy, especially after God turned Ezekiel into an enactor of prophetic charades. 
We see in chapter 4, God tells him, draw a picture of the city of Jerusalem on a brick and then lay siege to it, make little siege works. It was kind of like a little kid playing in the dirt, but God said, do this to illustrate what's to come for the city. And then when you've done that, lay on your right side for 390 days to illustrate the sin of Israel. And then lay, uh, lay on your left first, then lay on your right side 40 days to represent the sins of Judah. You get to chapter 5, and God tells him, shave all your hair off your head. It was probably more significant to him than it would have been to me. But to shave all the hair off your head and divide it into thirds to represent the fate coming on Jerusalem. One third of the hair burn in the fire. One third of it beat repeatedly with the sword. So he takes his hair and beats it with the sword in front of the people. And one-third of it, scatter it to the wind. This was to illustrate what was to come to the people. Chapter 6 finds him clapping his hands and stomping his feet and shaking his fist, crying out against the sins of the people. Chapter 7 is a poetic word of destruction that is coming. And when you put all of that together in that context, the strange words in chapter 8 don't seem so crazy anymore. In fact, the words from chapter 8 that we'll wrestle with today are really just an introduction of a section that goes on several chapters more. It's God's spiritual description of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the departing of the glory of God from the temple. If you remember the history, it will be, literally will be the Babylonians who under Nebuchadnezzar will destroy the city, but they're not able to do it because they were so mighty. No, Jerusalem is destroyed for one reason only, and that is that God allows it. In fact, God decrees it. But why? How could God let this happen? And what will happen now? If these are the kind of questions that come to your mind, you're likely thinking very much along the same lines as the exiles that surrounded Ezekiel that day. And this is why God sent Ezekiel this vision. But before we go any further, we need to orient ourselves in this story. We spent a good bit of time on the history of this era last fall when we did our series from Daniel. And this is a fascinating point in the history of the people, for you see, there is at this time not just one or two, but in fact there are three very important prophets, each playing their role during this era simultaneously. The nation of Babylon has come against Judah and conquered the city initially without destroying it. They deposed the king at the time, set up a new king, and then took into captivity what we will later learn were the best and the brightest of the land. Among those taken to exile are two young men, one named Ezekiel, another named Daniel. Daniel would be placed by God to serve in Babylon in the very court of Nebuchadnezzar, but not Ezekiel. Ezekiel will be chosen to represent God before the exiles of Judah who will be living in the land of Babylon for the next 70-some years. The third of the prophets is Jeremiah. He'll be left behind in Jerusalem. And in fact, that was the fate that everybody would have thought they wanted most. Yet when you really know the story, Jeremiah was given the toughest assignment of them all. 
But now let us return to the text with, with which we started and see if we can figure out why God was about ready to allow Jerusalem and his temple to be destroyed. Ezekiel 8, verse 3, He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and in visions of God he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I had seen in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, look toward the north. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. Now it boggles the mind to think of it, that things in Israel, in Judah, could truly have digressed this far, yet they had. But to fully understand the significance of what had been done, one needs to remember how things were supposed to be. You see, it all goes back to Egypt when Israel had been enslaved, the place which the Lord had brought the people from with a mighty hand. Of all the nations on the earth, God had chosen the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, to be his special people. And God made a covenant with them that they would be his people and he would be their God. And because of this, they were not to chase after the other gods in the land, but they were all their lives to remain faithful to the Lord their God. And to this end, in the Ten Commandments, we hear similar language from God. He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What it means is that God was pouring out his love on these people, and he longed that they would love him back. And any amount of them giving their love to another pained the Lord, sparking in him the jealousy that comes from spurned love. And so that the people would know that God was with them, he commanded that they build first a tabernacle in the wilderness and then later a temple in Jerusalem after God chose Jerusalem as the place to put his name. And these buildings were to serve as the proof that God was with his people. But now things had gone terribly wrong. And in the court of the temple that was to have been the place where God met with his special people, now stood a new altar, an altar dedicated to another God. And the sight of it was more than God could stand. Verse 6, And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things the Israelites are doing here? Things that will drive me far from my sanctuary? But you will see things that are even more detestable. It's important to note, he says, Do you see the things that will drive me away? God does not want to leave despite all the choices the people have made. But the time of mercy is running out, and the time of destruction is coming. Verse 7, Then he brought me to the entrance to the court. I looked, and I saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, Son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and saw a doorway there. Walls. It's the theme of our series for the next two months, 
the theme for our small group series. It's stories from the Bible where there are walls, where walls play an important role. Most of the groups got started this last week, and if you were a part of a group, you've already wrestled some with this particular passage. It's still not too late for you to participate. If you know someone meeting, join up with them or speak with Pastor Steve, he can help you. Last Sabbath, we talked about the walls of Jericho. The walls that Joshua alone had no choice. There was no way on his own. He could scale them or destroy them. Yet God had told him to be strong and courageous and promised he would be with him wherever Joshua went. And because Joshua believed and was faithful, God brought Jericho's walls down. But it's a long time later now, and times have changed. And it's not the walls of Jericho in view now. No, a different wall has come into view. The walls of Jericho were symbolic for the barrier that kept the people from the land of promise. But the walls we see today are a bit more sinister. For you see, today's walls are of a different kind. These are walls that we've all built a time or two ourselves. Today's walls are the walls we hide behind when we don't want God to see us. You don't get behind these walls through a gate because we purposely never build gates in these walls. No, to see what lies within, you have to dig through the holes. What do I mean? Let's go back to the text. Verse 8. He said to me, Son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and saw a doorway there. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing here. It's interesting to notice how often this passage speaks of the concept of seeing or looking. Already Ezekiel has looked and seen the altar that causes jealousy. Already God has asked, do you see what they are doing? And added, you will see even more detestable things. Already Ezekiel has seen the wall and the hole in the wall and the doorway. And God has said, go in and see the wicked and detestable things. This language is very important to us if we want to understand what's really going on here. And very important when we finally get to the application. Let's keep going. Verse 10 So I went in and looked, and I saw portrayed all over the walls all kinds of crawling things and unclean animals and all the idols of Israel. In front of them stood 70 elders of Israel, and Jezaniah, son of Shaphan, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand, and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. So it seems there'd been a little redecorating going on inside the temple. God had told them what he wanted it to look like, but, but it seems as though they'd done a little redecorating contrary to what the Lord had commanded. In fact, the exact opposite of what the Lord wanted. And now here standing before all these representations of idols and images are the leaders of the people offering fragrant incense. Are you starting to understand why God felt jealous? Can you imagine the ones you love, the ones you gave your best to, the ones that you will one day give your life for, standing in your house, but giving their devotion to another? 
And all of this is terrible enough, but to me, it is the next verse, verse 12, where we truly discover why the people have become unredeemable. Verse 12, he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? They say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Now there's more. There's a couple more things. The women weeping for Tammuz. You might look that up. That's rather fascinating. And the priests with their backs to the temple worshiping the rising sun. I mean, we want to talk about going back to Egypt. The sun was the big god of Egypt, and now here they are with their backs to the temple, worshiping the sun. It all leads God in exasperation to say to Ezekiel in verse 17, have you seen this, son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the people of Judah to do the detestable things they're doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually arouse my anger? Look at them, putting the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. It is a fully justified response, justified by the people's behavior alone. Yet it seems to me that it isn't just their behavior that has led the Lord to this point of judgment, but rather something else that has made destruction of the people inevitable, something that is core to the relationship between God and his people. And in my, in my mind, it goes like this. We are headed for trouble whenever we start hiding from God. And we are lost whenever we think it's working. We are headed for trouble whenever we start hiding from God. And we are lost whenever we think it's working. We finally lost our way when we think to build the wall that God cannot see through, for God cannot redeem any darkness in us that we won't admit he sees. Here's what I think. Yes, what the people of Israel were doing was terrible, but even those abominations could have been redeemed, I believe, if the people would have let God lead them out. But because they claimed God could not see behind their walls and claimed that God was no longer with them, they had become unredeemable. And the only thing left for them was destruction. It's all a very sad story, isn't it? Okay, here's where it all hits home. God does not dwell in a physical temple made of stone anymore, does he? What does the Bible say? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. 
Do I need to make this point any further? Probably not, but I will anyway. It's not about the physical temple in Jerusalem anymore. Now it's about you and it's about me. We are the temple of the Lord our God. Now I want you to imagine God is bringing Ezekiel to the temple inside of you. What is Ezekiel going to find in the temple? Will he find that your inside is open in every way to God? Or will God have to show him another wall, a wall inside of you where you hide away and claim, the Lord does not see me? Are you hiding part of you from God? Do you honestly think he doesn't see? I will confess to you all today that this has not been a very fun week for me as I've been considering this topic in my own life. And and to truly deal honestly with the text, I had to dig through the wall inside of me. And I got to say, I haven't been that pleased with the darkness that still lurks about in there. And I will tell you, my first impulse whenever I encounter my darkness is to hide it from all of you, absolutely, but also from myself and from God. But let me tell you what I believe God has been telling me. Don't try to hide your darkness from me. Instead, invite me into your darkness. Do not try to build the wall I cannot see through, for I cannot redeem any darkness you don't believe I can see. That's what God's been saying to me. And this all seems crazy if you don't actually think it through carefully. Our impulse is this. If God sees my darkness, then he's going to condemn me. And that would be true enough if all that's true about God is that he can see us. But that's not the nature of the relationship God desires to have with us. God doesn't just want to sit above us, looking down on us, seeing everything in judgment. No, what the Lord has desired from the beginning from that first time when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and then thought to cover their sin by hiding from God, what the Lord has desired from the beginning is to be with us, even in our darkness. Now, in truth, we could not fully be with God in our darkness before Jesus, for we would have truly been destroyed by the glory of God. That is why God limited his presence to the temple, so that he would not destroy the people. But now, Jesus has come, and Jesus has entered our darkness. And judgment upon our darkness has already fallen upon Jesus so that now, by grace, we can stand before the throne of God. Jesus has already saved us from the punishment our darkness deserves. Now he longs to literally free us from the darkness that lurks in our souls. 
but he cannot do so if we will not invite him behind our walls into those places of darkness. Did you notice the two things the leaders of Israel said in the text of Ezekiel? They said, God cannot see, and God is not with us. Well, if God cannot see, then we have hidden. But we know this isn't possible because God sees. But if all God does is see, then we are indeed condemned. But God does more than just see us. God is with us. Remember what God told Joshua, Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And you remember what Jesus says at the end before he goes back up to heaven? Matthew 28, verse 20. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And this from Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble, an ever-present help in darkness. He doesn't just see our darkness. He is with us in our darkness, and he will help us. Now, I know you have dark places inside. So do I. And I know you would like to hide them. So would I. But the truth is God sees. But that's not the only truth. The other truth is God is with you. And he will be with you in your dark places. And he will, if you let him, if you will allow him to work, redeem your dark places. It isn't the existence of darkness within us that will one day bring about judgment. If we do one day face judgment for our darkness, it will be because we never invited Jesus behind the wall to save us. We're headed for trouble whenever we start hiding from God. And we are lost whenever we start thinking it's working. God sees. Invite him behind the wall so that he can redeem your darkness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We are exposed before you because you see. But we are not alone because you promise to be with us. Lord, we pray by your grace, redeem our darkness. In Jesus' name, amen.